All right, let's get going here. Uh, welcome back to Colin Shots. I am joined today to talk about a very weighty NBA topic. No, it's it, it's a topic of interest most mostly to me because of some of the people involved. But uh, uh, Brad Rowland uh, here to to talk once again about the uh, the Atlanta Hawks. Um, first of all, how you doing, Brad? Hope you've had a good holiday period. Yeah, I'm, I'm hanging in there. It's uh, it's a busy time. It's a not busy time at the same point. So uh, a little <laughs> bit of everything, but uh, we're having fun. I appreciate you having me. So the Hawks, um, there's, there's sort of, there's on-court drama. There's multiple layers of off-court drama. Like where's the the place to start here? I mean, is it maybe the most natural place is kind of at the top where the, the, their, the front office kind of shake up and, and what you've heard about what actually went down because, uh, with Travis Schlenk moving into a different role and Landry Fields taking over day to day, the interpretations are, uh, open to anything between sort of a palace coup and legitimately like the day to day is a grind and, and bumping myself up one level is, is, is more conducive to living the best life. Um, so where in that spectrum do you think we are? Yeah. You know, I'm sure you've heard stuff too. It felt like there was a lot of buzz behind the scenes about Travis may not be that may not be around long term. I don't know if it was burnout or just kind of a kind of a mess behind the scenes is the most general way to put it. I was not expecting that to happen in December. Uh, that was the surprise to me and others. Like not that not that not that any any version of this happened, but kind of when it happened was a little bit odd. You don't usually see the pre-Christmas front office shakeup on a team that is not lighting the world on fire, but isn't necessarily uh, in the dumps either. Um, and yeah, he's transitioning to the senior advisor role. I don't know what that actually means. I think it might just be that he's under contract for multiple seasons and they, uh, you know, kind of come to, came to an agreement of, of some kind that he wasn't going to be fired or anything like that, but he also wasn't going to be as involved and also gets to collect his money. So that's a, that's a positive thing for him. But yeah, I mean, I think it's somewhere in the middle of what you said. I'm not sure it was a full on coup, but it's, there's been a lot of buzz about like how, messy behind the scenes it's kind of been i know the the name nick wrestler has been thrown around tony's uh son who's in the front office as a guy who has a lot of influence let's say um landry fields actually met the organization for the first time through nick wrestler uh, which he has talked about on the records that's not like a big secret um and then you have an owner who is involved uh and you know it's kind of that whole sequence of events and you have a coach who's obviously not not probably in the firmest place either and uh so long story short i think it's kind of a mix of everything i don't think travis was particularly happy with how things were going and at the same time i don't think he was like fired either so it's one of those like very weird uh behind the scenes things that we'll probably never have a full answer to at least on the record but uh for now they uh the shakeup has happened and i think you know travis is gonna take a step take a, take a step back and they're gonna be uh, in different hands now so uh, when you say not happy how things were going, is that like the team wasn't as good as he thought they were or just sort of the process of how they do things was getting messy? Cause, I, think I, mean, it was, I think it's more of a lot. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of both. I mean, obviously they're not playing well with the expectations that they kind of have. I think coming into this year, there was a lot of heat above him, which basically means the owner um, to you know make changes and, uh, the one thing that I kind of knew going into the offseason was that they were going to try to make a splash, and that was coming from the top uh, above Travis. And for all of that, like, to have that, that always pressure, goes well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and to have that pressure, and also, by, by the way, we want to make we want you to make a splash, but you can't go into the luxury tax for any reason. 
it's like this weird, you know, combination thing. And I think with the, the, the Nick wrestler stuff, that's bubbling out there. I don't know all about it. I'm not, I'm not the number one reporter on this, but obviously that's been out there to the point where he's been accumulating power uh, reportedly. So I think it was just kind of a, a messy situation where I don't think anybody in the front office was having a, whole, having a lot of fun. I don't think Travis like, had as much like unilateral say so as people might have thought. I mean, anytime you have a guy who's elevated to president of basketball operations, got a big new deal a couple of years ago, you would think that he would have some primary power, but you know this, like the number one decision maker is not the only decision maker, especially on a, on a team that has active ownership. Uh, and also the owner's son is in the front office. So that's, uh, there's kind of all, all, all kinds of competing narratives there. It's a lot of, a lot of fingers in the pie. Yes. Yeah, no, I can, I mean, certainly that, that does not head off any of the multiple inter- interpretations because like, um, you know, it's you get a little bit to the uh, the the Bill Parcells. If you you know you want me to cook dinner, let me pick the groceries. And if you're supposedly the guy who's responsible for how the thing turns out on the court, but you're operating under all these constraints, it's like, what are we doing here? Like, I I can see that, but at the other time, at the other standpoint, it's like, okay, if someone is making what are unreasonable and inconsistent demands, then um, an unreasonable and inconsistent um, you know, mid-season change of horses is is also uh, of a piece with that. So I don't think that <laughs> I don't think the situation really uh, allows us to to Occam's razor our way to to one uh, one possibility or another. No, definitely not. And look, there's also the anytime uh, you know Travis referenced in his uh, in his official I mean, special announcement that he was one of the sort of points out, I guess, reflect and prioritize his family. You never know what's going on there too. Like, I, I don't, I don't want to downplay that on one hand, that could be one of those things that just gets said in the press release. On the other hand, it could be a, a real factor. So I actually, I, I don't know for sure either way, but um, that's notable too. And look, like you, like, I think you said it earlier, being the primary decision maker, being the guy in a front office is a job that is uh, all encompassing and, you know, maybe he just was kind of burned out by it or all that stuff too. So uh, it's, it could be a lot of different things. And I'm sure of one thing and that it's not basically that it wasn't one thing. It's never one thing. And like nothing like his track record, like in terms of like his, his, uh, his performance as a GM basketball executive was mixed. You can find people that think he was awesome at his job. People think he was not so good at his job and everywhere in the middle, I'm probably in the middle there. I think he did a lot of good things and some questionable things. And, uh, but at the same time, I don't think he has a record that was like fireable either. So it's like one of those very interesting gray area things. Sure. So we're, we're, we're not going to maybe know the difference here. What, if any, do you expect the, the difference between in, in how the, the org operates going forward to be with, you know, a younger, uh, obviously, you know, to some degree less experience, but more obviously playing background, uh, in Landry Fields, uh, it, it, what do you know of how he he will of of his sort of style in terms of how he might approach things? Uh, what voices might gain more power, or is he just kind of a proxy for direct ownership control? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because Landry was a fast riser, and you know he's still he's younger than I am, which makes me feel very old. But uh, I think he was you know, he, he was yeah. obviously, <laughs> obviously a, a former player, but wasn't in the organization that long. You know, got brought in as assistant GM. Uh, they were looking for someone under Travis that was a former player, and they kind of admitted that to everyone that was listening. And he kind of fit that bill. He came from the Spurs organization, and he's a guy who is well liked for sure. Good communicator. Uh, I thought it was pretty interesting that. 
basically as soon as Landry got promoted to the GM role, even with Travis in place above him, Travis literally did not speak to the media on the record as soon as that happened. Never once again. Uh, and he still hasn't, by the way, on the way out. So that was interesting to me. Uh, I guess that was part of this too. Like, all right, Landry's the GM now. He gets to, he gets to talk to the media, which is kind of just one of those things. But I think that in terms of like how things operate, um, Landry's pretty visible. I think that he is not going to have the same level of power, both in title, experience, command, as Travis probably had. Um, there isn't a, a, a number one under him necessarily. I do think that Nick Ressler, um, both in title, I think he's like the manager of basketball, one of those like manager of basketball ops jobs. Um, I think he has more power than that would uh, would signify. I think if, if you ask me to name who the most powerful person uh, in the front office is other than Landry and Tony Ressler, the owner, it would be Nick Ressler pretty clearly. So I'm not sure if that means that he has more power and has you know decision-making power, all that stuff. But this is definitely an ownership-driven entity more than a lot of teams are. And Landry has a first-time decision-maker. It's hard to really know. Like I've talked to him plenty to kind of know how he feels about basketball. But in terms of like how he's going to run the show, we're in the early stages where I'm not entirely sure, to be honest with you. Sure. Um, manager of, of uh, if that is his title, manager is 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 um, a pretty entry to early career level title. So someone who actually is calling shots from that position, uh, no pun intended, is uh, that that would be unusual. But um, obviously the uh, the last name often carries more weight than the title. Yeah, it's one of those where I think he was I think he was brought in an announcement when they actually promoted Travis to the president of basketball operations title back in 2019. I'm looking at the release right now. This is from three years ago. But that was the last time the Hawks announced a bunch of front office moves um, aside from Landry Fields. And I think maybe he's like director of basketball operations okay. now. I think maybe, maybe he got maybe he got a bump from there. But Nick Ressler is 27 years old. So Landry Fields is young at 34. Nick Russell was 27 years old. So that's obviously not an age that you would uh, normally think would be a, a prominent front office job in a, or in a, in a, in an organization like this, but obviously uh, being the owner's son is part of that, I think. Yeah, I think we can leave it there. Um, other, I mean, obviously the other off court uh, bit, which is, you know, bleeds into the on court, obviously is uh, um, uh, anonymous uh, league executives are talking. Um <laughs> What uh, what what are they talking about, and uh, and and is there any fire, or is it just smoke about you know Trey Young? Yeah, it's an it, it's <laughs> it's so weird, man. I mean, I, I'm sure you had a lot of same thoughts I had. Like, it's a real report. That's the thing. So, you know, Hawks fans, as you might imagine, predictably went into you know discredit the reporter mode on this one, and it's like this is Chris Haynes. This is not like an anonymous. This is not someone who has no credibility. Like Chris Haynes is a prominent national reporter. Uh, but it is rival executives, so there's a little bit of cover there too. Um, I wasn't terribly surprised that like somebody finally kind of reported something in that realm because look, anytime you have a player like Trey on a team that is underperforming, that uh, it's not like a shock that he could be thrown around and some of that like, all right, who's the next guy? Because everyone's already look, always looking for the next guy to get traded. I don't think he's going to be traded this is very obvious but i don't think he's made traded unless he wants to be and makes it very public that he wants to be um are we there yet i don't think so but you know if the team's underperforming still uh you know this is not i know this is kind of a big market in terms of the market size but i think trey young thinks of himself at a certain level he relishes you know the new york la kind of spotlight that atlanta is not going to bring him despite being a pretty big market because the, the hawks 
are not the dominant thing in this town, nor will they probably ever be. Um, so that's maybe part of this. On the other side, he has a lot of power in the organization that he may not have other places, and he is the face of the franchise and all that stuff. But, you know, rival executives saying he might want out doesn't really rise to the level of, like, emergency for me. And I try, obviously did some calls and some check-ins. And, like, everybody's like, kind of like, nah, this is not that big of a thing right now. But it does kind of lay the, the tea leaves that if they, you know, even part of that report from Haynes was if they, whatever it was, underperform or don't make roads in the playoffs, whatever it was, was this season, I think that if they end up 500 or, you know, losing the play or something like that, then the noise might get louder in the offseason. But that would come from him, not from the team side. I think the team has obviously hitched their wagons to Trey for uh, five years now, basically. But is is it fair to say that this is a little bit more than, okay, player of certain stature, team not 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 that great well what about him is it um is it would you say it's it's a little bit more than just kind of that sort of spreadsheet math or is is, is it just kind of the surmise from you know what we know about trey and what we know about how the nba works does, does that make a- sense as a question i think like well i mean yeah. what you're saying is it's not imminent but is it but it's not it's not it, it's a little bit more than purely speculative or is that I think that's a good framing. I think it is not uh, not imminent by any means. I think it just uh, it's, it's one level above speculation in that you know he's had the multiple uh, times when he has been reported to not get along with coaches. Obviously, him and Lloyd Pierce didn't get along at the end. That was part of why Lloyd Pierce was fired. Um, there was the reporting this year about him and Nate in the middle of the season. Um, he has a lot of influence. Um, and like I, like I talked about earlier, I think the, there's it's not been a secret on the league that the Hawks front office has been in some turmoil this season. So all of those things, plus a he's not playing that well either, which is part of this. I think he's been better lately, but he was not playing at the same level as he was last year. Um, I, I, I don't think it's necessarily a situation where it's total speculation, but I do think that the, even the framing of rival executives are talking, there was no direct reporting that Trey Young is considering out or anything like that. So it's like one of those things where you have to read between the lines and that's part of what we do and have to do on the outside, but it's not coming out of absolute nowhere. If that makes sense. No, that makes sense. Let's, so you, you mentioned like not playing that well and, and the Hawks overall, I fair to say have been disappointing on the floor. Oh Yeah. I think that's fair to say at, seven, <laughs> at, at, seven, at 17 and 18 here after Christmas. That's probably fair to say, yes. Yeah, and he's been, I mean, he's always been someone who is, has had a, a um, optimistic shot selection, shall we say. Um, and thus far this year, like the, those those difficult shots, which he's made kind of enough to stay afloat, just haven't gone in. Is, is there, how much more to it is there than, than, than that in terms of, of his own play? I think that's the main thing. You, you look at his numbers, even like the the most broad uh, box score numbers. Like I think he's still, yeah, he's still at career lows in two point shooting, three point shooting, field goal percentage, effective field goal percentage. Like even worse than his rookie year. And his rookie year, as you well remember, he was very bad for most of his rookie season. And still, he's actually below those numbers in terms of just the raw efficiency. Now he's carrying a huge workload still, which is maybe part of the issue in some level because they they brought in Dejounte Murray and wanting him to have a little bit less usage. He still carries a big burden, still takes some bad shots. You know, shots that, you know, the Hawks probably don't necessarily love but don't hate either as he is. Uh, that's kind of just the way he's going to operate. I do think that he's going to make more shots. Even in the last couple of weeks, he's been shooting better, better from three-point range. And 
the team context is different around him too, which we can get into if you want. Like, I think the, the very obvious thing is this, this Hawks team was a top three, top five offense last year. And right now they're below average in the NBA. And that's not only on Trey. There's all kinds of roster things. There's less spacing for him to work with, I think, pretty clearly. But you could certainly have him pretty high on the list, at least I would, of reasons why the Hawks are not performing at their level on offense because he has to make shots. And when you take the shots he takes, and he's earned the, he's earned the right to take a lot of shots. Like, he's obviously a star-level offensive player. He led the league in whatever, whatever it was, total points, total assists last year. Like, he obviously has a lot of juice. But he has, even with a huge free throw diet and a really good free throw shooting level. He's like 55% true shooting this year, which is not horrific, but when you have 34% usage, whatever it is, and you're have his defensive issues and all that stuff, like he has to be better than he's been individually. I think he would admit that he doesn't, he's not the, he's not always the most introspective guy, but I think that even he would have to acknowledge like he's got to be better than he's been so far. Sure. Just to, to put a little bit of context around that, I've, uh, I have a kind of a, a static called simple shot quality, which takes into account basically the tracking factors that are on NBA.com. And in terms of, of total points from field goal attempts relative to what would be expected by a quote league average shooter, uh, there's only two players who have been, who are further underwater, um, in terms of, of, uh, the average player would have scored more points. Than they have, and that's that's Russell Westbrook, which isn't a shocking name, and and Lou Dort, which is probably uh, a surprising name because who thinks about people on OKC, but not a <laughs> shocking name to see there. Um, uh, RJ Barrett uh, had uh, had basically passed him uh, with a, with a few good games in the last last week, um, but that I think is illustrative of of sort of of what we're talking about. I mean, and generally speaking, like the players who have the hardest shot diet tend to be positive on that metric because to um, to earn the right to get to take those shots, you have to be able to make them at better than average. And so that's, that's, I, I, I think that, that, that almost undersells, um, how, how much his, uh, his, his poor shot making this year has hurt their offense. Cause it's not just, you would expect him to be even, you'd expect him to be, you know, pretty substantially in the positive on something like that. Yeah. I think that, you could argue, and I probably would at this point, given you know four and a half years of sample size, that last year he shot above his head. I think compared to in previous years, and even compared to what I think he actually true talent is on this shot diet, he shot very well from three. He made an obscene amount of mid range. I think he was like fifty two percent on long mid rangers, which is not sustainable for most anyone other than maybe Ke- maybe Kevin Durant. Um, and this year he's cratered off of all those numbers. The only area where he's still shooting basically his norm is from floater range where he's obviously always been great from that kind of that creative, you know, high frequency floater shot, but he's been bad at the rim. He's been very bad on long twos. He's been like, like 31% on threes. Like it's basically been across the board. And, you know, again, there's a little bit of noise with him having a little bit less space. I think if you look at the way the Hawks are operating their offense, they don't have the same pristine spacing that they've had in previous years with Gallo not being there and her not being there. But at the end of the day, the number one factor is just that he's not getting shots to go down. And I think there's no reason to think it's going to continue at this level. I think he's proven that he'll be better than this. But, you know, through 30, whatever it is, 35 games, I think he's played 31 or 32 of them. He's been just like flat out bad as a shot maker. And he, he, him, he in particular can't afford that because uh, he doesn't do a lot. I mean, obviously his passing is elite, but he doesn't do a lot else beyond that. Like he's not, he's not making a huge impact off the ball. Uh, maybe a little bit more than in previous years, but defensively, all that stuff. Like he's got to make shots. That a lot of his value is tied to that. He's just not making them. So you, you mentioned it a little bit more off the ball. Um, this is this is an odd thing that that 
uh, I, at least early in the year. I haven't I haven't totally checked in on it recently. Um, the the pairing and sharing of the ball between Trey Young and Dejounte Murray actually what had looked like it it was a little more seamless. Uh, I don't know if seamless is the right word, but it, but it was that that pairing seemed to be working well. It's just that pairing was not really working well with anybody else. Um, you know, John Collins, I think, has been the main sort of um, uh, main sufferer, if that's the right word, of of kind of having that that new person in in the pecking order. Is that? Do you think I, I, I'm about right, or is it just like even that pairing between Trey and Dejounte hasn't really clicked? Yeah, I think that's about right. You know, early in the year, it felt like they were making a more concerted effort. Um, there was obviously some, there's always going to be some your turn, my turn. And there's a lot of that. And they haven't had a real, like, I don't think a, a light bulb moment on like how best to operate between the two of them, but their two man lineup data is pretty good. Like when they play together, the Hawks have been okay. They haven't been great, but they've been okay. And I, I, I do think that it has it come at the expense of, of some other guys in particular. I agree with you about Collins just usage wise, because you know, when, when Trey is not the rare times in previous years, when Trey was not on the ball, uh, they didn't really have a primary creator, so they kind of maybe evened it out with other guys. And now, when Trey is not initiating, it is almost always Dejounte initiating, and that means that you know you have your usually your two bigs, you have a you know sometimes an underwhelming third partner on the perimeter, whether it's Hunter or whatever. Um, they've been better on offense now with Bogdanovich and Griffin back, but I think that they don't have a way at least that they've found so far to incorporate what the two of them can do together and also make it easier for everybody else. And I think that, you know, Trey, while he does have the theory of being an off-ball player, has never really bought into that, at least in a, in a way that's visible on the floor. And then DeJounte um, can fill in the gaps a little bit more, but I think it got underreported almost. Like, he got very used to being the guy in San Antonio for basically a two-year period. And I think he's still trying to remember – or maybe just muscle memory his way out of that because like even last night the Hawks played without Trey Young on, on Wednesdays we're recording this and DeJounte while he wasn't great it felt like he was a lot more engaged and a lot more like comfortable just being the guy for 35-40 minutes and uh, that isn't going to be his usual role it's nice to have that guy when Trey Young's not around but I think he's not quite gotten to where he uh, needs to be either in terms of figuring out how to be the number two on the offense so what I think that that in and of itself, that seems like a, a, a fixable problem if everything else is working right. Like, uh, I, you know, the the notion that you can't have a second, like, high usage ball handler, I think, is outdated. Now, some of that obviously requires Trey to, you know, do more off the ball and cede responsibilities willingly and stuff like that. Um, we would hope that given that, you know, the, that that the partner is his by request would, would help with that. Um but it's, it's the the problems seem like they come further down, and in in, in particular Collins, I think, because I think he's uh, give or take, uh, you know, Neko Kong, uh, or uh, AJ Griffin. He's the clearly the third most talented and probably important player on the roster. But turning him into sort of a spot up passenger is is you know in in a lot of the same way that that like you know Tobias Harris is sort of wasted as a just stand in the corner and spot up guy in Philly. Um, I feel like the, the, you know, positionally a little different. I feel like there's a been a little bit of that with Collins and, you know, he's, he is effortful on defense, uh, defensively, but he's probably not impactful enough 
to totally justify, you know, having him on in that role in the roster, given his, his compensation and such. Yeah, it makes it interesting with Collins because we've even seen it in glimpses when he actually gets utilized in his best role in offense, which is as a pick-and-roll dive man, where he kind of built his reputation in the league as an offensive player. He's still really good at that, but they, they don't really do that a lot because of factors that we've talked about, like having um, what they have on the roster. They've, been, they've made him sort of in a, a pick-and-pop guy or a mostly a spot-up guy which he can do, but it's not like what he is supposed to be doing in an optimal setting. And it's because they're playing the center all the time next to him, at least when they're healthy. The last couple of games he's been playing a lot of center because they've been out, uh, Capella's been out, but usually he's playing with a center. That's not a, that's not a, not a shooter at all in, in Capella's case, or at least a, not a three-point shooter in a Kongu's case. And yeah, I think if you only have Collins play the role that he has been in for this season, it's not a good use of $25 million a year. And that's not Collins' fault. I think he's still a really good player. He's made huge strides defensively to where, like, he's pretty good now. Um, but at the same time, he, on a, you know, I think everyone would agree, including the team, like, he's not in a, a dynamic spot guy. Like, he can make shots, but he hasn't made them this year at all. Really, that's been part of the problem with the offense is not making threes. But uh, it's a small sample size. But nobody thinks he's a spot guy in the primary context. It's just that that's what he kind of has to do to make it all work because of everything else that's been built around them. And uh, that's part of the problem with the roster construction, you could say. But even then, like, they don't have the buy-in, I don't think, from the off-ball movement. I, I agree with what you said a second ago, by the way, about how they uh, – there's no reason they can't have two high-usage guys, but it requires the second guy when they're not on the ball to be doing something <laughs> on offense. And that, that, that really hasn't happened either, which kind of uh, makes it – even more stagnant there's less ball movement and there's more guys like collins who are just forced to spot up and if that's aj griffin or or bogdanovich that works because those guys are you know really real gravity shooters but when it's collins and teams are just like all right we'll let him shoot that that hurts you too so one of the over the course of the season i i've been joking that i've tried to trade john collins to half the league so let's have that conversation um he seems like, I mean, we've, I don't know how many times you've, you've been on the show and we've talked about this, but uh, I feel like we've spent 10 plus minutes on where is John Trick Collins getting traded this week uh, every time you've been on. So uh, let's, uh, let's revisit our favorite running segment. Um, like I, I would have to imagine that in any sort of personnel move talks around the Hawks, like aside from the, the, uh, the flash of ooh, Trey, maybe. Uh, Collins is the one who is discussed most. Is that still accurate? Yeah, I think so. There, there was a report at one point, I think it was Mike Scotto or someone that someone definitely has some plugged in places that was talking about Bogdanovich being a prominent trade guy, almost on the same level of Collins. But the majority of the chatter that I hear is still Collins based. And maybe that's just because he has the biggest salary and they're worried about their long-term, um, you know, commitments. But it does, it does seem like that hasn't slowed down at all. I find it funny. As I, I'm, I'm not sure if you noticed this at all. But uh, when Woj broke, broke the news about Travis Schlank uh, stepping down, he included a reference to Collins still being on the market in his second tweet. <laughs> and it was like, wow, okay, so no changes happening there, huh? He's still, still very much available. And, uh, like, he's played well this year at times. But, yeah, I think there's uh, no hesitancy about him being available. The problem is, as I think we talked about before, the Hawks are still, that I can glean, still asking for quite a bit for him. And that price has not dropped yet, which is kind of why he's still around. But yeah, he's still very available. So re- remind me what quite a lot means, because I think that for a lot of teams, he actually, he makes sense as a, 
as, you know, depending on what that quite a lot is, it's, you know, uh, you put him on, I don't know. I think one one of my favorite spots is probably the Kings. Uh, I don't know if the, I don't know if the, if the, the Warriors have, have enough to, to do anything, but that would be, I mean, I, I could very much see him fitting into their, into their concept if they're willing to to move some of the young guys and the Hawks are would be willing to either do that or facilitate with a third team but anyway um so what are like what are we talking about here in terms of of what what they think they want or need uh in in a Collins deal yeah I mean maybe it changes and maybe this is one of those things that might shift and I don't know if it's going to with the new front office but I think part of the reason why it's been so tough to trade him is that the Hawks have kind of insisted on getting a starting caliber forward back in any trade because they just, they're doing this mixed messaging where they want to win now. And they know that they don't have an incumbent on the roster that can replace what Collins does for them. Um, they like Jalen Johnson long-term, but he's not ready to be a starting power forward for them. Javre Hunter can play some four, but I think that is kind of overstated in what he's able to do with his rebounding limitations. And uh, you know, he's better against guards defensively, et cetera. So that's been part of this. Like, that's why you've been, I think you've heard him tied to teams that have fours available. Like in the off season, I know Mark Stein reported this and I heard the same thing. They were close to a deal with the Kings for, that was built around Harrison Barnes and John Collins. Harrison Barnes is a starting caliber forward. There's been talk about the Suns and Jay Crowder is a starting caliber forward. There's been talk about the Wizards. I, I presume that would be Kyle Kuzma involved if that were to happen. So it's like, Every time there's like even a rumor that rises to the level of semi-credibility, it's almost always associated with a four coming back or at least a three and a half coming back that can play for them. It's because they want to win now and there's ownership pressure to do that. So it'd be a lot easier to do a Collins deal to a lot of teams in the league if the Hawks were willing to take a step back and say, all right, this is going to make us worse now, but we're going to get some draft capital or young player or whatever it's going to be. But they're trying to kind of walk that tightrope of getting something and something else and that makes again that's the simple version of why he's still on the roster at this point because look there are there are spots you talk about the kings i think the pacers are really interesting for him and if, if they want to kind of pivot back and keep miles turner and there's been a little bit of buzz about indiana being interested in collins like i've long thought miles turner is like one of the best possible pairings for john collins in the whole league so if they were to keep turner like why wouldn't they want to get, get get john collins there's lots of teams that could use john collins it's that they have to kind of meet what the hawks are looking for and you're basically saying no if you're saying, well, we need a four back because by and large, challenge trades don't happen. Right. That's why, that's why it's so hard. Like, that's why it's still yeah. on the team. It's, 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 it really is kind of like it's maddening because it's been so long. I think that's kind of also why you've heard a little more of like Collins being pretty open and pretty uh, willing to be included in a trade now. Like he's not asked for a trade, but if you read between the lines, some of the reporting the last you know six months, uh, he's not he's not fighting it anymore. I think he's just like, all right, can we just end this charade, please? Like, can we just make this something happen now? Not that he's like furious and like actively trying to get out, but like everyone's like, all right, this is the end of the rope here, right? Like this is, we're not going to, we're not going to keep doing this again through February. Maybe they are, but it's really the reason why and people are probably tired of hearing me say it too, but it's so hard to make a deal like that. Like challenge trade is a good way to frame it. Maybe, maybe the Crowder thing is like what happens in the best possible way because he isn't playing for the Suns, but at the same time, there's been reporting in Phoenix that I trust that's like, Phoenix doesn't really want to take on that money. 
So it has to be a three-team deal, and then it's like, all right, three-team deals don't really work. So all, all this stuff's tough, man. One wonders how, uh, given how um, the, the cash that the impending new owner in, in Phoenix uh, seems willing to spend, um, one wonders if that if that changes a little bit. Um, I, I mean, I just think that's, that would be a terrible basketball trade for Atlanta. I mean, like the only one yeah. of those players, the only one of those <laughs> players you mentioned that that like Barnes is interesting, but that's kind of that's sort of that is a bad timeline fit. I think Harrison Barnes is a good underrated player, and a player like him would be very useful on the Hawks. But does he push them over the top this year? No. Is he someone who is going to get better over the next couple of years? Uh, I'm. I'm fairly obviously not just given his age um kuzma is interesting but why does why does washington do that i guess you don't you don't say no for them but like i guess because he's a free agent and you want to lock in but yeah Yeah, that's fair that's fair and i I think collins and porzingis do make sense together for one example but i don't know if that's a one for one they've even talked about it's just kind of that's a team that's been interested and i'm with you on phoenix i mean since ever since the crowder like walk away from the team thing happened Atlanta's been mentioned in every report about that. And I think part of that's that he's from Atlanta, the Atlanta area, and he's training here and he's around Atlanta right now. Jay Crowder is, but like, you know, I like Jay Crowder. He's a perfectly fine player. John Collins is considerably better than Jay Crowder and also younger. And Jay Crowder signed for, and he's, 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 he's going to be in a, in a walk year. Do the Hawks want to bring Jay Crowder in and then have to pay him? Cause he obviously wants a new deal. Um, what else is coming back? You know, to match salary, you got to you got to take on Dario Saric or uh, maybe Landry Shamit, who you don't want either one of them. Probably, it's just a weird. It's a whole, the whole situation. It it, it kind of does tell you when you dive a couple steps further why the deal has not happened. Because again, the Hawks, by their own making, are kind of trying to like draw a, a, an inside story on this deal and get like exactly what they want, and that's that's tough to do. Sorry, I had to sneeze there. Um, <laughs> um, so the question is sort of, I, I feel like the, 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 that the way it's, you're presenting it, and this isn't you presenting it, this is the way, I mean, the way it's being laid out is either they get a four or they take a step back. And it seems like there's enough missing on that roster that there's a needle to be thread. I mean, the, it's not like you look at the Hawks and say, well, they have, they have no rotation spots that could get upgraded. Um, and so just, and, and wondering if like, you know, maybe a slight step back, but really gives us more depth and also like breaking that, that, that salary into smaller pieces adds some flexibility. Has there been any sort of, any sort of consideration of, and I don't, I don't, I'm not sure what that kind of deal looks like. Someone in the comments is suggesting something like, you know, getting, you know, Josh Hart or, or Gary Payton and, and Malik Beasley or something like that as part of a three teamer. And I don't know if that those are the perfect players, although like getting a, getting either a Hart or Payton would be, would be, I think pretty good, you know, getting a, those type of players or an Alex Caruso type or something like that would be, would be, you know, good gets for them. But, I guess are are they so set on must have starting four that like that kind of breaking breaking the asset into smaller pieces that are also useful on the court is not of interest yet. I think it could be of interest, and this is kind of where I don't want to use the word desperation, but maybe urgency is a better word. Like, where is the urgency point to where right. have they fi- have they finally gotten to the stage before the deadline this year? 
especially if they're hovering around 500, it's like, all right, what are we actually protecting if we don't, if, if we just to keep calling to, to stay, to, to quote unquote, stay good? Because, and I've always said, like, if they struggle this year to some degree and are not in a position to challenge for a top five or six seed in the East by February, the deal is more likely to happen at that point because then it's like the reality check of, all right, let's just do this now. Because part of the deal with why he's so available, I should say part, not all, part of the deal is that they're looking at their future at their future commitments and they're already at the tax line for next year with nine guys on the team. And that's not going to be where they want to be. So part of this is they want to save some money, which makes some which makes some sense when you break down your idea and break it into smaller chunks. That might be why the Crowder thing is kind of appealing for them. I'm not sure that it would be for me, but you know, whatever it is to shed a little bit of long-term salary and get multiple pieces, they have some spots. Like they could certainly use a guard that's better than Aaron Holiday to kind of, you know, in that DeLon Wright role would be helpful. Um, another shooter would not would not be the worst thing in the world for this roster. Another guy who can defend um, bigger wings besides DeAndre Hunter would be helpful. Like they have some needs for sure, but um, it really does come down for me anyway to urgency because I don't think the perfect deal that they're looking for is going to be coming. And it's really like if they're still whatever the equivalent of 17 and 18 like they are right now in six weeks, they're going to have to lower their price and they're going to probably do that. And I think that it's going to entail more of what you're talking about. Like maybe you get one solid rotation player that may not be a four and like a pick something like that. Um, it's not going to look like, it's not going to look like, like a home run trade, but it's going to accomplish their goals. And I know Hawks fans will hate this, but one of their goals is to save money for the future. And that's uh, maybe the top of the list or close to it. And uh, that's going to be what probably I think pulls the trigger at the end of this by what time you get to February. Uh, question in, in comments, and I think it's a good one is, you know, we've been talking about what they're going to do. What would you do? Like, is that, is that the, is that the way you'd go? Like a trade that, a trade idea, and I have no idea how realistic this is. That sort of, as I was talking, it's like an Alex Crusoe type. Well, why not Alex Crusoe? Like, depending on where the bulls go, would you do like Collins for Patrick Williams and Alex Crusoe? And there's probably some money that goes around somewhere in that. I mean, is that, I mean, that, that I frankly don't like that would, for the role that Collins is playing, how much are you losing going from Collins to Patrick Williams? And then Alex Caruso is, I think, a substantial upgrade on Aaron Holiday in that in that spot. So, I mean, is that the kind of thing that we we actually start to you know? This is again, I want to be clear. This is like purely speculative. Sure, I'm trade. I'm trade machining in real time, so you know, don't fact check me or anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it comes down to like a series of ifs, like. You mentioned the role. If the Hawks really do think this is going to just be the role he's in, then they have to, I think, lower their price because he's not being utilized in the best possible way. And if that's all they want from him and they've decided that, then they need to move him because that's all his, all it's going to do is lower his trade value long term. I'm not the biggest Patrick Williams guy, but I, you know, that, that kind of setup makes some sense to me. And then you get a, still a still intriguing, young, potential two-way forward with some size and burst. Caruso's really good. That makes some sense. I don't know what Chicago is trying to even do. No one does, I think, at this point. But, um, yeah, I think that if it's me, I know my value on Collins is higher than most. I will definitely admit that. But it comes down to, like, what is the plan for him long term? Because it really, if it really just is this, like, I think you, for the betterment of everyone, you probably have to move on from him, even if it's going to make you worse. And it's going to make you worse. I, I have yet to see a deal proposed that is like even somewhat realistic that makes the Hawks better in the short term. And that's just the reality of the situation. So 
yeah, I think maybe you get creative like that with a Caruso kind of that that kind of player. You could argue maybe Caruso wouldn't have the same impact on a team that already has Young and Murray on it, but still, he's a good, useful player. Um, I'm not even, I, have, I have a hard time getting like the fake trade machine out even for for myself, but it comes down to like being real with yourself as the organization. And I guess Landry Fields now as the guy, like being self-aware is to say, okay, what's our next step look like? Because I've kind of argued that, let's say, for example, the Hawks have a mandate from the top to not pay the tax again next year. I don't know that to be the case, but if that's the case from ownership, they're going to have to cut a lot of money. And I think that basically means you're either finally making the, the ripcord move on one of the centers, either Capella or Kongwu, or you're trading Collins, or you're trading Bogdanovich. Those are really your only options. Everybody else, you're committed to. You're, you're committed to Hunter. You're committed to Murray. You're committed to Collins, Griffin, etc. I would probably look at Bogdanovich as the guy I would dangle more. He's very valuable, but he's getting older. He's got the knee issues. That's probably what I would pivot to. But they seem to be more more eager to trade Collins. It's more long term money, and I get all that. So um, I think it's if it's me, and I'm in the mode of Collins is still available, and I'm the front office. I would change my position to basically entail, like, we're not going to hold out for the perfect deal for a four. Let's go ahead and be realistic and know this team's not going to win anything this year, which I think is honestly what I think at this point. And let's not care about this year as much and focus on what we're going to look like next year, the year after that. And there's also, I mean, this, this maybe is a, um, uh, if there's a if there's a benefit to having a strong ownership influence on you know personnel decision making is you don't have to like read tea leaves on what ownership is going to want to is going to allow right. to happen as much so i think there's i mean there's there's a couple things where you know being real um there's you know my guess is that nobody in the front office thinks this is the ideal role for collins and doesn't want it to stay that way but if you've built the team around a trey young Dejounte murray backcourt um, you know, maybe there's one more lever you can pull in terms of, you know, getting a more progressive offensive coach in, <laughs> and maybe that sort of can, can reorder things a little bit to make better use of, you know, Collins talents, but like, that's a, yeah, that's a hope, not, that's a hope, to, not a plan. Yeah. Not, not to, I, I'm not fire the coach guy. Uh, it's funny during the conference finals run, I was accused of being way too low on McMillan because I just thought he, people, he was getting a lot of credit for some things that probably were not all his making. And I kind of toined, I kind of coined the sarcastic term of Nate Auerbach because he was being referred to as, as like Red Auerbach level of coach. Um, and now I'm being seen as being too high on him because I think he's not the worst coach in the league, if that makes sense. But I personally, if it was me that you asked the question, I would move on from Nate and look in a different direction before I traded John Collins. I would see if there's another if there's another coach that could more integrate his skill set because again I am higher on Collins than most but I wouldn't just resign myself to be like this is all we're going to use John Collins for I would at least try another voice try another approach and see if that maybe opens it up a little bit um, I'm not sure if that's going to happen I'm not sure if Nate's going to be safe beyond this year probably depends on how they play but uh and it's not that redu- it's not that simple either but if it's like I, I would I would like to see long story short. Uh, Collins and this system, and uh, sorry, and this setup with a different offensive engineer at coach personally before I move and, on. And that's and this is you know, sometimes different coaches are good for 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 different situations. And you know, this is this wouldn't be the first coach. I mean, I think that that a big part of the reason that that uh, you know the Ben Simmons situation in Philly ended so badly is like he like he's not a plug and play type player 
who you can just, well, we're going to do everything that I always do and he'll be fine. It's like, you have to be a little more creative and, you know, we can argue about, you know, where doc is in, in, in the, the, the firmament of current NBA coaches. But I think that offensively creative is something that uh, no one would accuse him of being. And I think <laughs> that, that, you know, I think Collins is a more straightforward offensive piece, but with two very ball dominant guards already on the team, it probably is a little, you do need to do a little something to, to, to utilize him to his, to not just his best advantage, but to the team's best advantage. And, you know, Nate McMillan has some good qualities, but that's not really one of them. Yeah. And, I, and I'm realistic about Collins too. Like I know I'm higher on him than most people are, but I know it's not super easy to build the perfect system around, not, not they're building around John Collins, but like there are only, you know, a few guys that are like perfect fits with him at center. Cause he can't be your primary rim protector defensively. He's a good secondary rim protector. Um, I think he's going to have to figure out a way to operate when he's not, when he's not the primary pick and roll guy, but still, I think he's still being underutilized uh, this season in particular compared to previous years. And I think that not that Nate is the only reason for that. I think some of the guard play is part of that. They're not like creative with the way they use them, but I mean, it's intertwined, I think. Yeah, it, it all, it, it, yeah, I agree. That's definitely the way to put it. Like, it's all kind of feeding into each other on that. But, I, you know, John Collins' usage rate is, I think, at career low levels. And, look, he's not going to be this breakout star. He's 25 years old now. I'm not saying he's going to be the next the next anything. But he shouldn't have 60% usage, which is where he is right now. That, that's just comically low for what his point is. I mean, I think, I mean, we, we, I think we've seen on a, probably a, a smaller scale. I think it's, it's not like Kevin Herter's usage has skyrocketed in Sacramento, but his involvement and impact has certainly, as he's been able to kind of do more, like do, do some DHO stuff, do some, you know, come, come off, off, off pin downs, maybe use some second side pick and rolls a little bit more. Um, like it, it, his range of skills has been on display. And I think that, I think that Collins is, is a more talented player, but has been, you know, over his career, but like this year, especially has been like stifled to the wrong word, but yeah, stifled uh, in, in a way. So, um, you know, you mentioned some of the defensive issues. I, I mean, I think that, that in a team that is reliant more on like a, on protecting the rim by, a, you know, staying in front of the ball with some more switching versus, you know, the, the Hawks are, you know, because they always play a big or more kind of traditional drop center field kind of, kind of thing like it, I, f- I feel like that, that there's 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 more there's more room to 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 fit in there than I, you'd think maybe we're even given credit for so i maybe i'm higher even higher on john collins than you are i i doubt, I doubt that Seth, but i, I do, uh, I do <laughs> appreciate enough. you trying to be no you're on my side no it's uh i i definitely Agree. It's uh, it's not to bring to the point. I just feel like he's got to be used differently than he has been so far. And, and if they're not, again, it, part of it is a self evaluation, which is a hard thing for an organization to do. I know you worked for a team. Like it's just it's hard to look at like objectively. All right, what, what's our plan now? Like what are we? What should we be? Etc. That's like questions that we can't answer from the outside. We we have our opinions on what they're going to be, but a lot of it really does come down to organizationally. Like what do they want to? Be? build and like, how do they want to do it? And I, I can't answer that question. I, I think, I mean, I, I, I think the, like, that's one thing, but I think the, 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 that's almost the easy question. And the hard question is like, when it comes down to what, what are really our parameters, you know, 
the best sure. move might be trading, uh, might be trading Dejounte Murray and doing blah blah blah. But but we can't do that because reasons X Y and Z. Like the maybe maybe the best move is is taking a step back this year, but we can't do that. Maybe maybe we're at the point where we need to go into the facts because that's the only way we can move forward. But that's not going to happen because X Y and Z. So being like honest when you're setting up kind of your decision matrix about like, okay, those options aren't those options. We shouldn't even consider because we just can't like it's that like it's, it's, it's stone tablet word of God stuff that those, those are <laughs> things that cannot happen. And so we don't need to waste any more time thinking about them. And I think that, that one of the harder things to do is sort of allow that information to sort of propagate through the organization in a way that people are, spending their time examining the things that are actually um, not just like um, recommendable, but like possible and plausible given the, 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 I guess, political environment of the team. Yeah. What are our constraints is the number one question for the Hawks. I think even moving forward, but even now, like, I don't, I don't it's not, it's not, everything is not about the luxury tax line. And I, I'm probably guilty of that too. It's not just about that. But like, what is the willingness? What's the flexibility level? What are our long-term plans? Like, I mean, if I that's a bright line, that. if that's yeah. a bright line, that needs to be known that that's a bright line, and and we are and, not and, crossing it. This year, it, it was, and this year, yeah. and this year, it was, and I, and I reported that and got yelled at for it, and I was I was correct. And look, they. By the I, way, for 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 where the team is, that's I think that's perfectly like unless you think you're going to be a you know a, a, a low to mid fifties win team saying hey, we're not this is not a team that we're paying the luxury tax. I think that's fine. Like you know the the money aside, I think that it's just like okay, if we're paying the luxury tax for a forty four win team, someone screwed up because that's like barring injuries, <laughs> right. like we're we've done something very badly here, and that's a pretty you know good indicator. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. It's more that they clearly, the way they were spending money in retaining guys and extending guys, it seemed like they clearly had to have thought they were going to be in the tax in the near future. And then they suddenly were like, nope, we're not going to go in the tax. And it's like, well, then don't extend everyone if you're not going right. to go in the tax. And that makes right. sense. That's kind of, that was my issue. It was like, they just didn't jive together. The plan, the plan, um, you, you should have probably negotiated harder with John Collins if you weren't going to go on the tax. You probably shouldn't have paid Kevin Herter a year a year in advance if you were, if you weren't going to go on the tax. Because looking at the sheet, like I'm on the outside, I'm like, all right, they're going to have to go on the tax, or this, or they're, they're or they're going to have to sell somebody off. And the answer was selling somebody off and Kevin Herter. So, I mean, I the know, other kind of the other the other possibilities there are are either like either I mean this and this is this would be a this would be a failing that that like uh, Travis Schlenk either didn't ask or didn't you know, didn't get the, get every, get everyone, the people right the signing the checks on board with, Hey, look, we're going to do this now. And in three years, that means we're going to be at this. Cause like we're doing a, if we're doing four year extensions. That means that we have to look at what the, what the thing looks like in two years. So we don't get, find ourselves in a situation where it's a year and a half later. And then someone opens like the, the, you know, the forecast for, you know, 2023, 24. And it's like, holy shit, we have how much on the, we're on the hook for how much? No, we gotta get change this. Cause that puts you in a, in a situation where, you know, you're over a barrel and the, whoever you're dealing with knows you're over a barrel. And, and that's how like lopsided trades happen. So, you know, so either that didn't happen, wasn't asked about, or there was an answer that was changed. And it, like, none of those are good things, but who to blame <laughs> yeah. sort of depends on, on where that is. Agreed. And yeah, we'll know, and we'll never know. 
So yeah. <laughs> that's part of the and it's, it, and, 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 you know, and honestly, it was probably some degree of, of, of combinations like, well, we're going to do these things. And then in, then in 22, we're going to win 54 games and, and be really good and, and great. And everyone will be fine paying the money. And then it's like, well, okay, that's again, that's, that's, that's a hope, not a plan. And we were kind of seeing the, seeing how that shakes out. Yeah. I, uh, I concur with all of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess I mean I wanted to ask about about you know the the coaching situation, but I think we've touched on that. Is there uh, anything else? Like what are uh, I I kind of think one of the main bright spots of the season has been you know certainly last time we talked was right after his kind of breakout game against the the Bucks. Um, you know where are we with uh, with AJ Griffin now? Yeah, he's he's been uh, certainly the number one bright spot when compared to preseason expectations. Like I, I generally think rookies are bad for the most part, that's simplistic, but I expect very little from rookies most of the time. And he's been uh, a steady member of the rotation. He's not perfect. I think defensively he's got a long way to go, but for a 19 year old, he's um, pretty mature on offense already. He can do a little bit of everything. Um, not a dynamic creator for others just yet, but can get his own shot in the mid range. He can take, can take threes and I think has played well. And honestly, I shudder to think where they'd be without him because they don't have any depth on this roster, even with him, honestly, like, Anytime they have two injuries, much less anything beyond that, you kind of see the bright red line of how bad the deep bench is on this roster. And that's with Griffin playing at a rotation level as a rookie. If he wasn't there, man, it'd be pretty rough. But uh, he's not shot the ball well the last, the last couple games. But before that, he had a run where he was like 55% or higher for, six, like, I think, six games in a row. He's, uh, he's not lighting the world on fire shooting-wise in terms of his, like, uh, his efficiency numbers. But 37% on decent volume from three getting uh, kind of to his spots and making just real decisions as a, as an adult at 19 year old is, uh, is pretty impressive. I've liked what I've seen a lot before. Have they done, have, have they done much, you know, using he and Hunter as forwards in sort of a smaller, smaller group? Uh, they, they tried it a couple of times, you know, Hunter is really their only small ball four option. And he's been out the last couple of games, which makes it, they probably would have got a little bit more without Capella. Um, and it, it, it's hard because they have the two centers that when they're both healthy, basically play 48 minutes at center. And then you have a, a guy in Collins who's a 30 minute a game player. And that kind of leaves you with very little time to experiment at small ball four. And it's mostly just Hunter. Um, so yeah, they've done it a few times. I think that Griffin um, size wise, like height wise, I think he's only like six, six, but he's pretty stout. He's yeah. pretty physically beefy for someone um, who's 19 years old in particular. I think they actually rolled a lineup the other night that had him and Bogdanovich as the forwards. And it was kind of out of necessity when they had injuries, but Bogdanovich um, for uh, is, is pretty stout as well, like physically. So he's not the most uh, fleet of foot at this point, given the knee stuff, but um, that's about as, uh, as beefy as you're going to get from a couple of guys who are not, who are not fours by any means, but they can kind of fake it on the interior, on the interior. And I think long-term, Griffin's going to get um, even stronger and probably a little bit more tricky in a good way defensively and be able to hold up against some fours and be able to kind of do that. But we're not quite there now. I think that he's definitely more of a pure wing at the moment defensively. And uh, there are matchups where he, he looks bad. Like, if he gets singled up against a guard in space, he's not sliding well. He's not quite to the level where he can kind of contain ball handlers yet. But um, he, he does execute fairly well for someone his age, and I think they will, they will continue to try – especially going back to what we talked about earlier, if they, if they were to move on from Collins, they're going to kind of have to be more creative on how they handle 
these small ball units because they have to play a lot more small ball. That's what they do. And I think Griffin's a good part of that because he is, you know, 225 or whatever he is already at 19 years old. So, I mean, I some very uh, obviously fully, you know, great sample size. Uh, they've played 35 possessions with, with young Murray, <laughs> young Murray Griffin Hunter, and one of the, the centers, either Capella or Kongwu. And they are uh, in those 35 possessions. They are, uh, plus 62.9 per hundred possessions. There you so go. I guess that works out to, they're oh, probably in, 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 you know, in that, in that, uh, eight, in that 20 minutes or so of game action there, they've, they've probably outscored the opposition by about a point a minute. So, uh, take that to the bank. But I mean, I think that's, that's a, that's a sort of thing that, you know, part of part, you know, that this is a, again, goes back to the, the coaching creativity thing for a team with, uh, some roster limitations kind of, as you go down the pecking order, like finding ways to make sure you have your good players on the floor and your bad players off the floor uh, seems important. Yeah. I, I think that there are lots of interesting groups that even another one that I've always liked as a thought process is like trying to keep Bogdanovich and Griffin together when one of Trey or DeJounte is off the court. And if you can play one of those ball handlers with Bogdanovich and Griffin, like you're pretty dynamic on offense, even for a quote unquote second unit, because that's kind of what their second unit is going to have to be when they're um, at more full strength. And like having two real shooters who also are not just only shooters in McDonough and Griffin is very helpful to kind of boost units. I think we even saw McMillan the other night when Trey was out, kind of purposely have the two of them, Griffin and McDonough, kind of act as the offensive initiators when Murray was off the court, because they have nobody else that can do that. Granted, it was kind of out of desperation with Aaron Holiday as your other point guard, but like it, it kind of works. Like Griffin is not afraid; he's not a primary by any means, but he's not like averse to taking on more usage and being able to being able to scale. Like again, he's probably been the clearest bright spot by a wide margin. Like I would argue, Capella's been really good this year. There's been guys who played well, but compared to what I thought he was probably going to be right now in December as rookie season. Griffin uh, has turned some heads for sure. And I think even more so locally, like I think he's going to be a very good player for a long time, provided he stays healthy. But even then he's been very healthy this year too. He's not been on the injury report, I think at all, all year long, which knock on wood and all that stuff. But after the last couple of years, him being fully healthy for basically three months now is pretty positive too. Sure. Um, anything else we need to hit on? Um, or I think, or, uh, Check in again in a couple of months when when uh, everything has changed once again for the Hawks. Yeah, I mean, other than uh, just the the weirdness of where they are injury wise, and the fact that uh, I know I mentioned it probably at one point, their lack of depth makes it to the point where they they just can't afford like anybody to be out, which doesn't really work out in the NBA. Seth, I know right. you're well aware of that, <laughs> but you cannot build your roster with uh, the need to be healthy for 82 games. That's not going to be functional. But And they've been bit recently. Like last night, they played without three starters. That, that's tough for anybody. Trey Young, Clay Capella, Hunter out at the same time. It's going to be tough. But yeah, I, I'd love to know where they're going to be in two months uh, record-wise to kind of uh, infer some of these decisions they're going to have to make. But right now, they're just kind of a 500 basketball team, and nobody's terribly happy with that. And uh, I think that's going to lead to some interesting decisions in the near future. Well, uh, thanks again for joining. I uh, appreciate, appreciate the conversation as always. And th- thanks folks for listening and, and uh, chipping in with, with some, some good questions in the comments. Uh, I will be back tomorrow to talk about a, uh, a, a definitely a place where the vibes are definitely better, which is uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers with uh, the athletics, uh, Kelsey Russo. So join me then. And uh, thanks for listening. Talk to you.